0: Hello and welcome to the Veterinary Secrets Podcast. My name is Dr. Andrew Jones and this is episode 36. In today's episode, I'm going to discuss whether or not the over-reliance on psychotropic drugs is now affecting veterinary medicine, how you can naturally treat your dog or cat's eye infection at home. Can cannabis cure cancer? And are grapes really toxic for dogs? Veterinary Secrets is also on iTunes. Just go to iTunes search for Veterinary Secrets. We're also on Stitcher. You can download the Stitcher app and search for Veterinary Secrets. Definitely, I'd appreciate it if you would subscribe to my podcast and leave a review. You can do so on iTunes or Stitcher. And if you have yet to do so, I encourage you to get a copy of my free book and three free videos at veterinarysecrets.com forward slash news. Now let's get right into today's podcast. Is the overreliance on psychotropic drugs now affecting veterinary medicine? You know those drugs that have been reached for in human medicine for anxiety, depression, and mental health disorder. It really is worsening. You know, writing a prescription for a psychotropic drug is quick and painless for the human practitioner. You know, healthcare providers—they're quick to reimburse for it. And it's easy to do. It's easy to to get psychiatry for people overall has largely become the practice of pharmaceutical psychotherapy many times without the degree of safe and positive outcomes that patients are seeking. Is this over-reliance on psychotropic drugs seeping into veterinary medicine? Some say it is. According to a 2008 report in the New York Times called Pill Popping Pets, The practice of prescribing medications designed for people to animals has grown substantially over the past decade and a half. And pharmaceutical companies have recently begun experimenting with a more direct strategy, marketing behavioral modification and so-called lifestyle drugs specifically for pets. You know, this pop up pill to cure your ill culture does little to address the medical, social, and environmental problems causing the emotional discomfort in people and obviously in animals. It also turns our focus away from researching ways to improve, you know, psychological states naturally, relying more on methods that just to bo- adjust the body's own neurochemistry instead of, you know, just taking this brightly colored pill. There's plant-based compounds that offer relief from anxiety and distress. But really, we need much more research on herbs for animals to better understand the risks and benefits. That said, there are similar chemicals as those found in cannabis, poppies, and chamomile tea already within our own nervous system and those of animals. These include, but are not limited to, the endocannabinoids, endogenous opioids, and now endogenous benzodiazepine That's endogenous valium. We, like plants, create not only the neurotransmitters themselves, that's the chemicals, that are transmitting in part of our brain, but also receptors for them. So these are specific receptors where those chemicals attach to. And they're often, interestingly, often from genes similar to those used by the plant kingdom. So how is it that animals and plant-based foods, such as chocolate, wine, and tea, wound up expressing similar psychoactive chemicals. You know, Is it the result of this coevolution of plants and animals? You know, a means of communication within and between animals, plant, fungi, and bacteria? Or might plants have nervous systems that respond in a similar manner to neurotransmitters, you know, such as GABA, that's gamma-aminobutyric acid? It's a significant inhibitory neurotransmitter in the animal brain. The overlapping chemistry is now causing some plant neurobiologists to ask, do plants have brains? But is there a way that we can modulate the nervous system with approaches such as acupuncture? Of course, pot in our brain. You know, more recently, researchers are looking ways to upregulate the production of cannabinoids naturally through interventions such as massage, manipulation, acupuncture, and herbs. Natural Valium, the next endogenous neurotransmitters receiving interest, are the endogenous benzodiazepines, or endozepines, found in the blood and brain. These natural endogenous benzodiazepine receptors occur not only in human brains, but also in other animals. It remains unclear how the body itself might synthesize uh, these type of transmitters, but we know that certain bacteria, microbes, may produce them, as do certain foods such as potatoes, tomatoes, and chamomile tea. Acupuncture and Valium, could acupuncture affect the body's release of its own homegrown valium-type analog? Back in 1997, a panel of experts convened by the National Institutes of Health seemed to have indicated this could be the case. As one report indicated, some Western researchers say acupuncture triggers the production of many different chemicals, including pain-killing endorphins, calming endogenous benzodiazepines, and mood-lifting serotonin. Almost 20 years later, there's still, unfortunately, no report that tighten this link between endo Zepines and acupuncture, what is causing these responses to occur? Is there a natural um, endodiazepine somewhere in the mix? The more we know about how the brain's own chemistry operates at a better level of function, whether through diet, exercise, music, massage, or acupuncture, the less reliant will be on medications that don't really cure the problem, but instead may just be masking it. And so ultimately the whole point of this story and what I'm trying to convey to you is there are a whole bunch of different possibilities that we can be dealing with in terms of with anxiety or these anxiety disorders you know, such as treating separation anxiety in dogs. And don't just need to rely on these psychotropic drugs. And we really need to have more research, more understanding of what can ha- what's happening in our brain, in our animal's brain, and how we have these s- similar neurotransmitters, these similar neuroreceptors in plants, and how we can benefit from those plants and using them with our animals. Now let's get on to the second part of today's podcast, how you can naturally treat your dog or cat's eye infections at home. Mean your pet's eyes are one of the more critical and sensitive parts of their anatomy. There are a number of different eye disorders, and many of those are amenable to at-home remedies. Some of the common eye disorders include conjunctivitis, known as red eye or pink eye, epiphora, which is known as excessive tearing, uveitis, KCS, known as dry eye. Glaucoma, we get an increase in eye pressure. Cataracts, where the whole center part of the eye, the lens turns very white. Corneal ulceration and progressive retinal atrophy, also known as PRA. The big one I want to talk about today is conjunctivitis or eye infections. It's defined as inflammation of the red, that pink tissue around your pet's eye, also known as conjunctival tissue. It's the most common cause of red eye in dogs and cats. Fortunately, there are many atom remedies that can be used for this. What are some of the signs? Your pet's eyes are red with a yellow or green discharge. The eyes continue to water. Your pet squints or rubs his or her eyes. The tissue around the eye appears swollen. And with cataracts, the middle of the eye the lens appears cloudy. The causes of red eye are numerous. The most common are bacterial conjunctivitis, bacterial infection of the tissue around the eye, and allergic conjunctivitis. So typically what's happened is either your dog or your cat has got it from another dog or cat, so they can spread that bacteria just by them playing with them, having direct contact. And it could be a viral infection, such as our cats especially, having the flu virus, like these secondary, very painful, swollen eyes. Um, So what do you do? What are the solutions? Well, the first thing, think about seeing your veterinarian. Here are three signs to trigger an immediate call to your veterinarian. If your pet's eye infection is painful with your pet rubbing their eye, if the main part of the eye, the cornea, appears to be indented or layered, and if the eye suddenly becomes cloudy. Obviously, if you're not sure at all, call your veterinarian. What are some other things you consider at home? And especially if you're just dealing with the red eye or you've seen your veterinarian you've had the diagnosis that your dog or your cat has conjunctivitis. That's a fairly simple, something you consider treating at home, eye infection. Eye Tears. The lubricated eye tears used for people with minor eye infections can be very soothing for your pet. First wipe away any discharge away from the eyes using a damp cloth and then apply two to three three drops in the affected eye three times daily. To the kitchen. Tea is more than just a drink. It has tannins in it that are anti-inflammatory and have antimicrobial properties. You can brew up a strong cup of black tea and place three to four drops in the affected eye three times daily. It should be made daily to prevent contamination herbal. Eyebrite. This herb has antioxidant and anti-inflammatory properties. You can either one make a solution of home where you're mixing five drops of eyebrite in 125 ml. That's half a cup of saline solution. You can use an eyedropper placing two drops in the affected eye twice daily for five to seven days. Or you can also in most natural health scores actually get pick up eyebrite already in a solution form. More healing eye drops. Instead of using euphrasia you can substitute one of these herbs. Raspberry, nettle, or organ grape. Mixing five drops of these herbs in half a cup of saline solution, then using an eyedropper, placing two drops in the affected eye twice daily for five to seven days. A couple of homeopathics to consider. One is belladonna, the other one is euphrasia. The belladonna works by stopping inflammation. is often used for pink eye. You're dosing it at three tablets. So it's one tablet for 20 pounds of pet's body weight, um, given that two to three times a day or somewhere for five to seven days. The other one homeopathic is euphrasia, definitely useful for some of the more chronic cases. Once again, you're dosing it. At 130C tablet for 10 to 20 pounds of body weight. You're gonna be giving that once daily, and that'd be one you'd be giving for a little bit more often, up to two weeks, assessing if it's helping. And then the last one I want to talk about is honey, which I've actually used on my own dog. And what I've done is taken unpasteurized locally grown honey, and what I've taken is a teaspoon of honey diluted in half a cup of water. So that's warm water, mixed it up. And I've kept that in the fridge, and then what I did is I put five to seven drops in his eye, and I was putting that in twice a day. and I treated him for a week. Fortunately, I saw him respond in three days. In all cases, I mean, the last big thing is if you're not sure at all, see your veterinarian, it's always a great idea to actually have an accurate diagnosis. But I think it's also important to know some of the alternative options. Why there is much to learn about cannabis, cancer, and pets. The search for plant-based cancer cures turned by exciting prospects such as curcumin from the Indian spice turmeric and medicinal mushrooms. Scientific research is highlighting a number of mechanisms how these work but then there's certain other things that we need to think about and certain things that have been discussed. discuss. In particular the whole issue around marijuana becoming legalized you know in, in some areas of the United States. Seeing some of this happen within Canada and clients asking you know can I use cannabis on my pets. But in particular there's been discussion around cannab- cannabis and um, the chemical constituents of cannabis called cannabinoids, their effects on cancer. In fact, the National Cancer Institute website now carries an entire section on cannabis. Their NCI presents information on the potential benefits, such as the antiemetic effects in terms of stopping vomiting, spe- specifically if we've got our animals and people are taking uh, some of the chemotherapy drugs, how it helps stimulate appetite, so appetite stimulation, and, b- and the ability to both alleviate pain, pain management, and also improve. So here are some of the specific anti-tumor effects of cannabinoids. Despite the mounting evidence that cannabis derivatives have, have anti-cancer benefits, the question of whether cannabis can cure cancer remains unanswered. So what remains to be answered is whether THC, systemically administered, can exhibit curative effects at clinically relevant concentrations, and whether it did so with good predictivity. Research has indicated that THC administered directly into tumors and to most models has reduced their size. Intratumoral administration allows for the use of higher concentrations of THC that might be acceptable systemically. One clinical application for which intratumoral THC has attracted attention is a unusual tumor called a glioblastoma, a condition that is otherwise very difficult to treat. As with any plant compound, learning about the scientifically based mechanisms of action is partly the first step. We need to know as well how the products interact with others, pharmaceutical and botanical, along with their purity, potency, and proven benefits in target species. When and why the body might begins to exhibit tolerance to cannabinoids? Will the liver start to induce enzymes to metabolize the compounds? Could cannabinoids and conventional chemotherapy work together, even synergistically, so that clinicians could lower the dose of these pharmaceuticals and thereby lower the risk of adverse effects? I mean, great questions asked that need to be answered. In human medicine, cannabis has been perceived as highly effective by patients with advanced cancer or pain and symptoms management. For animals with cancer, we really need to know these answers. Um, so definitely, say, post and as things change and information becomes made available I'll let you guys know. So the last part of today's podcast was I want to discuss grapes. It's been in the news a variety of different times. Grapes causing death in dogs. You know, is it safe for dogs? Is it not safe? What are the signs and solutions? Recently there really has been a lot of talk about grape and raisin toxicity in dogs. I personally have received numerous emails from pet owners asking, you know, what should I do? In most cases, we look at thousands of dogs will consume grapes and nothing happens. But a small number do react. So what is known? So what happens if we've, if we've got a dog that's going to react to a gr- raisin or grape toxicities, they're going to vomit generally within a few hours eating raisins or grape. Then within 24 hours they become anorexic, they stop eating, drinking, they can have diarrhea. These clinical signs can last for days to weeks. Some dogs will develop kidney damage as, as soon as 24 hours after the first day after exposure. As this damage progresses, the dogs will produce less and less urine until they stop producing urine at all. Once that happens, I mean, they're going to die barely shortly after. Dogs that are treated early and aggressively have a really good chance of recovery. If tre- treatment is delayed, the prognosis becomes very poor. What is not known is yet to be discovered what the actual toxin is. There's been speculation that maybe grape itself or possibly pesticides, heavy metals, you know, such as Zinc or lead, perhaps even fungal contaminant. There does not seem to be a critical dose that the dogs need to be exposed to before seeing signs of toxicity. Some dogs eating as few as as few as a, a few grapes can regularly be affected, or other dogs, you know, they consume vast quantities and are completely fine. You know, it's just really a bit of a mystery. There seems to be equal cases in dogs eating grapes as there are dogs eating raisins. There does not seem to be a breed, age, or sex of dog that is more affected than the other one. So what do you do? First of all, obviously, don't be feeding grapes or raisins to your dogs. Think about where they can be, and they can be in trail mix, they can be in raisin bran. If your dog eats grapes or raisins and they vomit shortly after, I mean that's the big big warning sign. They react. So purge the poison. So that's the biggest thing. If if you know that your dog has consumed that and it's with, within the last few hours before that grape or raisins had a chance to move through your dog or your cat, your dog's stomach, you want to induce vomiting. So getting your pet to vomit is the most important thing you can do. To induce vomiting, give hydrogen peroxide at a dose of 1 teaspoon for 10 pounds of body weight. If your pet doesn't vomit in 10 minutes, repeat it again. Never do more than two treatments of peroxide. The other big thing is you know, you're not sure you've seen this happen your dog is not vomiting go to your veterinarian they're also are able to get them to vomit with a tablet that goes under their eyelid called apomorphine delay absorption activated charcoal is readily available at most pharmacies it delays absorption of any toxin by binding to the toxic compound in the stomach the easiest way is to give the capsule form. Those garbage-eating dogs, such as my own dog, it's just a good idea to have hydrogen peroxide and activated charcoal on hand. So lastly, what you do, your dog consumes grapes? should you panic? You know, it's a good question, you know, because I've thought about myself. If Lewis consumes grapes, and my last dog, Hoochie, he enjoyed eating grapes. I mean, do you react right away or not? I guess the safest thing to say is that knowing that a small percent will react, then I mean, either get your dog to vomit if they don't vomit, you're a veterinarian that being said we know thousands of dogs have consumed grapes with relatively small percent reacting so ultimately it's up to you to make that call if it was me and it was my dog i if i saw lewis eat grapes now i would immediately be dosing with peroxide to get them to vomit. Well, thank you guys for listening to today's podcast. This is Dr. Andrew Jones. If you have any questions or comments about the podcast, a couple ways you can reach me. Either one, you can send me an email. That's at podcast at veterinarysecrets.com. You can also place a comment after this podcast post on my blog. The blog is at theinternetpetvet.com. And if you have any specific suggestions, I'd love to hear them. Send me an email, comment after the post. Once again, just thanks for listening. I look forward again to talking to you guys next week. This is Dr. Andrew Jones.